Hi, everyone. This is uh, Stavros Yanuka. Welcome back to another episode of Wise uh, Words. Our guest on this episode is Billy Grayson. Billy is passionate about protecting the environment. He plays his part by helping people from different industries understand the science behind environmental issues, and he advocates in business terms uh, to provide policy solutions. Uh, he's currently the head of the Center for Sustainability and Economic Performance at the Urban Land Institute, which is one of the oldest and largest networks of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world. Uh, the reason we're uh, hosting Billy on, on Wise Words is because he's had a very interesting education, and we are exploring with him how his education equipped him to take a multidisciplinary approach to problem solving and to develop a career helping people around him to understand the importance and relevance of fields such as science, business, and politics uh, when wanting to make, uh, make a difference. So with that, I give you Billy Grayson. Uh, Billy Grayson, welcome to Wise Words. Thanks for having me. Uh, Billy, I, I want to start just by asking you first maybe to share a little bit about your personal experience uh, growing up and, and, and going to school in Washington. You went to a fairly well-known uh, institution called Sidwell High School, which is where I believe uh, both Presidents Obama and Clinton sent their kids That's to, correct. to be educated. So share with us a little bit about what, what makes that school uh, so special and what what is it that you've gained from that, uh, that early education experience? Well, I think for me, the, the special experience with Sidwell was two classes that I took my senior year in high school. Uh, one was called 21st Century Biology. Uh, it was focused on genetics, and we had the opportunity to sequence part of the human genome for the National Institute of Health and write a lab book that other high schools could then use to help those students learn about gene sequencing and gel electrophoresis and all of the elements that go into genetic coding. It was especially exciting for me as a very average student who hadn't taken AP Bio. Uh, the students appreciated my broad general base of knowledge and I got assigned the duties of writing the lab book. Um, mainly because I probably didn't have the technical acumen to be able to handle some of the more specific activities and the lab book being a generalist, it allowed me to, uh, to take what we were learning in the class and put it in a context that was useful for other high school students. Um, I also had the opportunity to take a field biology class that culminated in a senior research project where I worked with the Anacostia Watershed Society to map pollution levels and tributaries in the Anacostia River. And through that opportunity, again, you know, Sidwell has created opening doors. I had the opportunity to submit this to a subcommittee looking at uh, water quality issues in the Potomac and Anacostia River up on the hill. So I had my first experience uh, actually adding written testimony to Congress. So two pretty amazing experiences for a high school senior. Now, these, these, I mean, these projects sound, sound incredible. Um, how, you know, it's a slightly sort of delicate question, but how, how much of that is, is down to the fact that the school does attract you know, the, the, the kids of, of, of presidents and, and I imagine uh, a number of you know, Congress men and women as well. Um, 
how much of that is, you know, can be attributed to, to that aspect? Uh, and then what, you know, how can we take, in your view, how can we take then that experience of real-world learning, because that's exactly what, what you've just described, and, and maybe think about applying it more, more broadly? I think that it's probably a mix. I think that a class like 21st century biology in 1999 and being able to work with the National Institute of Health, that may be a uniquely Sidwell opportunity because of the connections that the school affords. But the opportunity to get a $50 water quality testing kit and drive around in my beat up used car to tributaries in the Anacostia River test that water and build something valuable that a nonprofit could use in their advocacy for better water quality. I think that's an opportunity and experiential learning that could be afforded to any high school kid at any school anywhere in the world. And it's more that the experiential learning and being able to take field data and translate it into something that was useful for policy that was the real important and meaningful part of that experience, not necessarily the access or the peer group, or the exclusiveness of the school. Yeah, and and, and as you as you rightly say, okay, in, in 1999, that the the uh, genome sequencing opportunity would would have been tremendously unique and uh, rarefied. That's no longer the the case. I mean, the sequencing technology, the cost of sequencing, has uh, plummeted, and and therefore these sorts of opportunities are now. Uh, potentially more and more widely uh, available. What, what do you think? I mean, you gave, I think these are, these are really good examples, but what was it about the school in your view that, that allowed these opportunities to, 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 to come your way? Was, was there anything, I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to extract from your specific examples some sort of general principle around how uh, educational institutions ought to approach these these kinds of opportunities? It's a good question. Um, I think that I think I could probably answer half of that better than the other half. I think at, at Sidwell there was a very strong emphasis on service uh, and social justice and community engagement and it goes back to the principles of it being a Quaker institution and it was ingrained into the ethos of the campus. And so doing things like the project that we did uh, with the Anacostia Watershed Society really aligned with Sidwell's goals to get kids out of the classroom at some point and out into the community doing meaningful work, applying their research skills, their language skills, their management skills to help solve real, real world problems in the community. So I think it came from that ethos, those opportunities to do community engagement. Yeah. And and that's that's again that's a that's a principle that can can be applied very broadly. Uh, there's nothing stopping any uh, school or or institution of learning from having that uh, ethos of wanting to engage with the local community, wanting to provide uh, service for services' sake, but also as uh, as a way of of, of learning, as, a, as an object of learning. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I wasn't in the teachers and administrative meetings, but I think that Sidwell gives teachers a certain amount of freedom to be creative in how they design their courses and the level of experiential learning that they can provide. I don't know that you have that same sort of freedom uh, in a more 
routinized public education system to be able to provide that level of flexibility and creativity for your teachers. No, that's, that's we didn't good. take a lot of standardized tests until the SATs at Sidwell. Um, okay. uh, it was a lot more uh, written essay form type of projects and tests. Yeah. yeah. And th this, was, this was before the No Child Left Behind Act, I imagine? Yes. Yeah. yes. So there, there wasn't a sort of uh, perhaps as much of a burden either coming in from uh, uh, central government or... Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, it was post-early uh, education programs under the Clinton administration, but I had already you know, graduated yeah. out of those early education programs. But it was before the focus on testing became such a strong part of the education curriculum in the United in States. In the U.S., yeah. Um, you, you're now at the Urban uh, Land Institute, and, and you're managing um, the Institute's sustainability initiatives. Tell us a little bit about how uh, how you got into this this line of of work, and then uh, describe also in a little bit more detail, perhaps what what you do. It's been a long and winding road. How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have as much time as, as you can give us. So, well, I it sort of started in in college. I was studying field biology. I thought I wanted to be an ethnobotanist or a microbiologist, and wander the rainforest with shamans and eventually find a plant that we could synthesize to find the cure for cancer. And I found that most of what I had to do to live that dream involved sitting in a lab, uh, leafing through pieces of fungus and counting the numbers of lichens that fell out of a tree, or sitting under a tree and fogging it and seeing what bugs fall out for four hours. And it really didn't feel like this was going to create the systemic change that I was seeing with some of the environmental problems that I was witnessing, being interested in tropical ecology and seeing the impact of uh, habitat destruction and climate change on tropical ecosystems. So I was lucky. I went to a small liberal arts college called Claremont McKenna in Los Angeles, and there were some uh, two very progressive investment banker benefactors, and one of them had created a center uh, for the study of environment, economics, and public policy. He had found in his career that the best scientists understand policy and economics if they want to make a difference. Best politicians understand science and economics. And the best business people understand science and policy. So that really gave me that well-rounded education I needed to know the science and be able to advocate in business terms for the policy solutions that I thought we needed to protect the environment. So I think you... you highlighted actually a very important principle, this, this sort of triangle, uh, well, actually it's a quadrilateral between science, policy, business, uh, and, uh, and, and economics. Um, say a little, bit, a, a little bit more about how that uh, plays out in your, in your work. So the, the how urban, do you bring that to life, yeah, in other words? Yeah, the Urban Land Institute launched a new strategic plan for its Center for Sustainability and Economic Performance a year and a half ago. And the primary focus is to articulate the business case for sustainability and use that to drive 40,000 ULI members to integrate it into their real estate development decision-making process. So we are spending most of our time researching and refining the business case for sustainability in real estate 
working with real estate capital markets to better price uh, long-term climate risk and the business case for energy efficiency, working with developers so that they can understand the business case for health and how better health outcomes can translate into more real estate value. I am working to create public-private partnerships where cities and the real estate community are working together to make the economics work for all of these sustainability investments, whether it's more resilient infrastructure for the city or better development terms to encourage the right type of development in the right places. And, and you, you highlighted again, I think, a very sort of interesting point that it was, it was sort of the liberal arts education that afforded you this opportunity to sort of connect the dots between the different domains, uh, science, policy, uh, economics. Is, is that something that, that, again, how would you see that translating? Because, again, not everybody has, you know, has the opportunity to go to uh, uh, sort of uh, liberal arts institutions. How do we think about maybe translating some of that opportunity either back down into, you know, in, into our high schools yeah. Or, or maybe more broadly, so that it uh, it's afforded to more uh, institutions of higher learning. I think that being able to write, being able to organize your thoughts in a logical and coherent way, being able to speak effectively and persuasively in defense of your argument, and then having a little bit of and experience with critical thinking and analytical reasoning, those are probably the foundation of anything else that you would want to yep. do. And as long as you can promote those things in education, I think you can layer the foundation on top of it, mm -hmm. whether it's through a professional school or a trade school or a liberal arts education. I, uh, I just by way of my background, I was not very good at math and did not understand the point of algebra and actually worked my way out of taking calculus in high school. I then almost yeah. failed calculus at a community college where I took it because I knew I wouldn't pass it at my undergraduate institution. But then I came up against microeconomics and that provided context where I understood the application and the value of learning calculus. And even though I had to learn microeconomics and calculus at the same time, I was able to do it more effectively than if I had, yeah. you know, taken either of those courses out of context without the right foundation. So, so again, it goes back to being able to see the practical application of what you're learning is what motivated you, uh, you know, say yeah. a, 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 a disinterested uh, student when it came just to the, the theory of, of algebra uh, to be able to sort of crack it uh, yeah. at, a, at a fairly high and, and demanding level. Yeah, and that might not be a, a universal need. Every student has a different learning style and a different way of absorbing yeah. material. But I think in general, when you can see a practical application of a theoretical uh, concept or construct yeah. that you're supposed to learn, that gives you some grounding and anchors it so that you remember it better and, and see the value in learning it. Yeah, and I, mean, I, think, I think we have enough uh, evidence to, 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 to say that that's, that's probably a generalizable principle. Uh, what you've just articulated that you know the more practical uh, the more real you make uh, make an application uh, the more likely it is that it will be learned uh, retained and, and and recalled when uh, when needed um, so so share with us uh, maybe some of the some of the insights you're gleaning and 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 
what are the arguments that you're using, uh, for example, now to sensitize uh, real estate business in this case to uh, to take uh, the issue of sustainability and the environment uh, seriously? So I've spent the last decade working on how to make reducing energy, water, waste, and greenhouse gas emissions cost-effective and have it add to the value of whatever business you're in. Uh, as a sustainability director of an in industrial uh, distribution company, we work to drive energy efficiency across our real estate portfolio, across our vehicle fleet, and leverage the technology we're using for sustainability not only to make our buildings more energy efficient and cost effective, but also to turn them into showrooms for this technology. It's a distribution company. This then helped uh, top line revenue as well as improving our bottom line revenue. And working in commercial real estate is a very similar concept. It was these investments have a great payback. It's even more compelling in real estate than it is for a Fortune 500 because you're not just looking at payback and ROI, you're looking at the impact on net operating income and applying a cap rate on that to create value, the net present value of the building. So putting it in that context, almost everything that I was suggesting had a positive NPV and it was a good IRR. There's a good you yeah. know, annual rate of return on the investment. So uh, it was a compelling business case. Uh, now I'm working on bigger environmental issues where there's either a market failure or there's some uncertainty in the business case. So working on health, we have to look at how different health treatments in the building can improve cognitive functioning and reduce absenteeism. Can you, can you give me an example? Yeah, so um, access to daylighting and to uh, natural light helps to align your circadian rhythms with your natural body's functioning. Being under harsh fluorescent lights with no access to daylight can throw off your internal rhythms and make your sleep worse. Yeah. The worse your sleep is, the lower your cognitive functioning scores and the less productive you are. Yeah. So if I can expose you to natural light that mimics your circadian rhythms, I'll get your sleep schedule on track and you'll be a more productive employee. And, and by the way, the, the, the same exact principles that you just articulated can and ought to be applied when we're thinking about designing schools. Yeah. The challenge is, uh, at least in real estate, I, as a real estate owner, get zero of that value that I just created for you in productivity as a tenant unless you pay me for it. And so there needs to be an alignment between the best interests of the real estate developer to build a building that increases productivity and the tenant who's going to get the economic gains from that productivity. And so, I mean, that's one of the, yeah. the split incentives that we're working on at ULI. Yeah, and, it, and I imagine it's, it's not easy to sort of quantify that. Yeah. that productivity in a, in a way that makes it sort of tangible. I mean, we, we can all appreciate it in theory. Yeah, people have, yeah. Uh, for the most part, given up on the translatability of that productivity. They look at other indicators that are HR indicators. So what's your absenteeism? What's the level of turnover of your employees yeah. in this healthy building versus a less healthy yeah. building? Um, what's employee satisfaction levels? How well are you recruiting the top talent in your new healthy building versus your less healthy building last year? Those are more easily quantifiable yeah. metrics. Yeah, yeah, and easier, obviously, easier to understand as well. Yep. and to see in practice. Yep. Yeah. Um, wh what are your thoughts in terms of, of you know, how can this uh, insight that you're you're bringing to the your institute is bringing to this to the table, you know, around you know the the environmental uh, impact of of 
living spaces, working spaces, um, have on, uh, on, on productivity or just even on, on more broadly well-being, uh, the well-being of individuals. How can we channel some of this information back into, uh, into our education system, both at the level of making people aware of, of, of that these, these are important issues, but also when it comes to th things like, you know, how, how, how we think about, you know, designing our schools, how we think about turning them into, into spaces that promote uh, well-being and sustainability. I think that's a very good question. I, um, again, back to my high school education, uh, after I left, Sidwell was one of the first uh, schools in the country to pursue uh, LEED certification under the U.S. Green Building Council uh, rules and got a LEED gold facility uh, out of their middle school. One of the first things they did once they got that certification was equipped the middle school students with the tools to become guides to that facility. And that exposed those middle school students not only to learning the value of the things that were done from a sustainability perspective in their building, it also forced them to learn how to communicate those to external audiences. And most of the people coming on tours uh, were professionals and third-party uh, leaders in the community who wanted to learn how to apply these new lead principles to their building. So it exposed those kids really quickly to having to be able to not only um, absorb knowledge, but being able to then articulate it to an external audience. I think that's a great way to leverage a building to teach design elements that then the students have to then be able to articulate whether it's on a test or to yeah. somebody doing a tour of the facility. And, and just so, sorry for the benefit of, well, my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, LEED stands for? Uh, it's Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Um, and in Europe, uh, an equivalent would be a BREAM certification. Yeah. Don't ask me what BREAM stands for. No, that's for. fine. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. But it's okay. It's, it's a certification for, uh, for environmental design. And, in buildings, uh, yeah. And in buildings. Yeah. That's terrific. Um, what, what are your thoughts, Billy, around more more broadly teaching issues of environmental sustainability in, in, in schools? I mean, you've, you've given us, again, a, a, a terrific example of how uh, one particular school, Sidwell, brought that to life through, through the LEED certification. But do, do you feel we're doing enough to make uh, uh, the next generation of uh, of, of adults uh, coming through our education system aware of the, the challenges that our environment faces, but also the many opportunities there are to actually do something about it. Yeah, I, I, I think that as, as great as my high school education was, there were some limits to what I was taught in terms of how to frame sustainability in a way that will drive market transformation. We learn the science and we learn the moral imperative to do the right thing yeah. when it comes to these issues. But I did not really learn anything about how to articulate the business case for sustainability in high school. And I was fortunate enough in college to take economics courses and corporate finance that gave me the language I needed to take what I had learned about the science uh, of environmental impacts and then translate it into something that your average business person could use to motivate them to change their decision-making when it came to an investment or a development project. And yeah. I think the further down that can get into uh, high schools and even middle schools, the better. I would love to see 
middle school students who are showing off a sustainable high-performing building talk about the payback period and the return on investment of those especially energy and water saving yeah. investments that, that were made and how it's those investments that help pay for the investment and all the other things that make that a sustainable, healthy place to live, work, and learn. So it's really, it's really about what you're talking about is introducing, uh, you know, an understanding of, of incentives uh, and, uh, and, and incentivized behavior uh, at, at a fairly uh, young age. You're right. I mean, we, uh, in, in education, we don't often get exposed to these concepts until uh, until quite uh, quite late in the day, and then it's always, I, I would argue, even then it's in a very sort of theoretical. Well, you know, the, these are you know these are the model. This is how markets work. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what point. I mean, I, I did economics at, uh, at at A level, which was is the equivalent of, of the last two years of high school, uh, and then uh, and then I went to business school as well. But I don't. I don't remember when I got introduced to the concept of, of externalities, and 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 you know the, the, the notion of of needing to price these externalities if we wanted to, you know, fundamentally alter the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was midway through college, and it yeah. wasn't as part of my studies in uh, microbiology. I didn't get exposed to that until yeah. I was taking economics classes and. Even in my neoclassical economics education, it was a footnote within that curriculum. Um, I took an ecological economics class that was entirely focused on this topic. But even in environmental economics, there really wasn't a, a thorough analysis of positive and neg negative externalities and how to price them. Yeah. I also didn't learn corporate finance in college. I, I sort of had to pick that up on the street. On the, on the way, yeah. <laughs> you know, things like project finance and, yeah. um, you know, how to put deals together was not something, even in my MBA curriculum, that I learned until further on in graduate school and really not something addressed in undergrad. And I think that uh, corporate finance, even if you taught it through the lens of personal finance, could be the sort of thing that yeah. a high school audience could really appreciate and learn, and I think it would be good uh, to round out their education yeah. because it is very applicable to sustainability strategies because you need the financing necessary to make the investments to make this a better planet yeah. and a better built environment. Yeah, and again, I think what I find interesting about our, our, our conversation is really it's, it's highlighting the need for multidisciplinary uh, and, and even interdisciplinary uh, uh, application of, uh, of of knowledge to to, to tangible uh, e examples. So again, if you take if you take the example of of um, you know thinking about how to how to make uh, a, a building sustainable, there's you know there's the, there's the science, you know how you know what kind of materials you use, uh, you know why why is access to daylight important. For uh, you know, for uh, for, the, for the folks that are going to uh, inhabit that building, then there's obviously the there's the economics, um, and then again there's the, the sort of ethical uh, uh, dimensions to it to it as well. You, you know, you want spaces that uh, promote uh, well-being as, as as much as possible. Um, very rarely do I mean, if you're lucky enough to go to a, 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 an institution that promotes 
maybe some project-based work, you get this kind of exposure. But very rarely do we uh, have we seen uh, institutions that break the monopoly the disciplines have over uh, over over teaching very kind of narrow, very focused uh, uh, fields. I, I think prerequisites in college are important. I, I think students come from a, such a wide range of backgrounds yeah. that at a certain level, you need to make sure people are grounded in a, a fundamental level of education, especially in the humanities and sciences, uh, so that they can be well-rounded individuals uh, when they go on into the greater community. I mean, the fact that we are still having a debate about whether climate change exists and there's a host of scientific evidence that can um, demonstrate that there is something going on with global climate and we are causing that. Yeah. Um, I think there'd be less of that skepticism if people had a better grounding in science education. I also think that people would be able to make more well-reasoned decisions if they had a better understanding of the economic implications of the policy decisions that are being made. Um, yeah. I think all of that goes back to making sure that people do get that well-rounded education. And, and at least at a, at a college level, I think you can do that through prerequisites. I think I had um, eight or nine prerequisite courses across uh, science, math, language, and humanities uh, in my undergraduate education. Forced me to take a class in economics. Never taken a class in economics before. Found it fascinating, yeah. and that led me to change my major and adjust my career strategy. Yeah, no, that's that's again, that's a that's a great uh, great example. And in, in, in fact, you 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 sort of answered. Uh, usually, I, I save this question for last, which is, you know, if there's if there's one area of knowledge that you think everyone uh, ought to possess. Uh, and ought to acquire what would that be, and and you sort of answered it through, through you know scientific education, or, or at least the the idea of these prerequisite areas of knowledge that that everyone should uh, should possess. Yeah, I can only speak from experience. Yeah. I think that every humanities focused person should take at least one meaningful uh, math or economics class and one meaningful science class to get more well-grounded yeah. in those disciplines. And I think every engineer and scientist needs to take some policy courses uh, and some science courses or some policy courses and some economic courses to get that well-rounding. I think understanding how these disciplines relate to each other is going to be yeah. effective for folks in their professional career, but also make them better global citizens. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think I, I would push it actually a little bit further than that and say, I think we need to go back to teaching reasoning and and logic as as standalone uh, disciplines or skills, if you want to, uh, because that's that's really what underlines all of the subjects that you you've just described. The common thread, yeah. the common language, is is the application of principles of reason and and, and logic. So I didn't get to take any uh, business and economic classes in high school, but I had a class in logic and reasoning my sophomore year in high school. Yeah. So it's, a, that's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. But, and I would argue that that probably sets you up to be able to then tackle almost any, uh, any uh, uh, other topic that, that uh, comes along your way. I would agree. Well, uh, Billy, thank you very much for your, uh, for your time and for sharing 
your wise words and insights. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wise pod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.